want to talk about some ways this morning that we can uh, uh, resist Satan. Matthew chapter 26, verse 41 tells us to watch and pray. We can quote scriptures to him as Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, when Jesus himself was tempted. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 tells us to put on the whole armor of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 tells us to learn Satan's devices lest he gets the advantage of us. Satan comes to us clothed in robes of, of the pleasures of life. We can find that in Luke chapter 8, verse 14. Also, uh, riches, and, and we can read that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. And also in worldly things, in 1 John chapter 2, in verses 15 through 17. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 14 and 15, it tells us that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 4, it tells us that Satan blinds the minds of men. And he can do this through prejudice, and we can find that reference in Matthew uh, chapter 13 and verses 15 and also Acts 7 and verse 57. He can also do it through the lack of our knowledge of the scriptures and God's laws. And we can find that in, in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6 and also again in John chapter 8 and verse 32. Also he can do this through our own procrastination and a good example of that is Acts 24 and verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27 tells us not to give place to the devil. And in James chapter 4 and verse 7 and 8, it tells us to resist the devil and he will, he will flee from us. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 2 Timothy verse, or chapter 3 verse 12 tells us Satan persecutes all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. I'll end here with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breath, breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation, 
and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Show of hands, how many people are happy with the way in which uh, America is headed spiritually today? No? Okay. Here's a good example. Um, a Lutheran minister in Chicago by the name of Aaron Musser dressed in drag and did a children's story hour during their church service a few Sundays ago. Yeah. How do we get here? How, does, how, does, how do Christians, people that profess to be Christians, get to, get to this point? Um, when I argue these things, which I do quite a bit online, um, I usually get rebutted with a couple verses. The first is John chapter 8, verse 7. Let he who is with sin cast the first stone. And we all know that we know the reason for this. Jesus was, they were trying to trap Jesus. Um, they were trying to get him to either break Roman law or Jewish law by, by either saying she wasn't guilty or that she was uh, sentenced to death. He would have broken either law. So he, he uh, wisely found a way out by pointing to their own sins. And then at the end, he tells her he doesn't, he forgives her, which he's allowed to do, but then he tells her to go away and sin no more. He didn't say it wasn't sin. Okay. And then Matthew 7, 1 is another one they say, uh, they use, which says, Jesus says, do not judge or you will also be judged. And we'll get back to that one in 10 or 15 minutes. Um, but we as Christians are actually tasked by the Bible to judge. We have a duty to judge. And, but, but these, these judgments, they're rules. We have to do them in the proper proper context. Otherwise, we end up with an America like we have today. Um, so we have several rules for judging. The first is that we must judge. 1 Corinthians f chapter 5 says, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Are you not to judge those people inside the church? Expel the wicked person from among you. Can't do that without judging. Jesus says in John chapter 7 verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Um, which is the follow-up of 7-1, which he's telling us, he does not telling us not to judge, he's telling us to do it correctly. In other words, get all the information before you, before you make a decision. Do not apply double standards. Back to Matthew chapter 7. This is not prohibition against judging, but a warning not to be hypocritical in making judgments or to apply double standards. God knows that we are in no position to help someone else through gentle correction, we are when we are not in a good place ourselves. It reminds me of the of the pre-flight instructions about the oxygen mask. Please make sure to secure your own mask before assisting someone else. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to remove the speck in your brother's eye. Uh, three, judge actions, not motives. First Corinthians four five. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose motives of the heart. At that time, each of you will receive their praise from God. 1 Kings 8.39 says that only God knows a man's heart, so we can only judge based upon what we can observe, which are actions. So we, need, we don't need to try to interpret people's motives. We just need to go with what we have. Confine judgments to actions that are not disputable. Paul writes in Romans 14, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted him. And this comes down to people that use their own personal preferences as judgments in the church. Um, you know, I don't drink, 
the Bible says it's, it's wrong, drunkenness is wrong. You know, it talks about the drunkard a lot. But I can't judge somebody for having a glass of wine with dinner because I don't know their motives, I don't know their situation. Um, same thing with sex outside of marriage, extramarital sex is a sin in the Bible. Some people believe that kissing before marriage is a sin. That's their own personal, they're, they're overstepping there. So we need to make sure that what we judge, we do so uh, with the backing of Scripture. And number five, the main reason for judging is to seek restoration. Paul said we should, dis- we should discipline an immoral Christian so that this spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Similarly, Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Someone is caught in a sin. You who live by the Spirit should restore them gently. But Paul warns against pride or comparison. Watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. He says and adds, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Reminds me of yesterday. I got super glue on my fingers. And the first thing I did, separated. Didn't want my fingers getting stuck together. If you go to, if you go to counsel somebody that's in sin and you're in danger of falling into the same sin, you need to separate. So you don't want, you don't want to get stuck into their sin. Um, so when we are tempted to correct our brothers or sisters, we must do so with the correct motivation, which is one of humility and a sincere desire to help our fellow Christians. Otherwise, we risk becoming like the Pharisees who place enormous burdens on the Jewish people while they themselves refuse to abide by the same standards. I guess the main thing I want to talk about is us being equipped and ready to share our faith with people. Um, I'd like to just read a couple of verses and then try and tie them together somehow. First Timothy 6, 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus, thus gone away from the faith. And then 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 6, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. But who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for what is doing right than for what is wrong. As we heard earlier about the spiritual climate of America, thing I, I don't recognize this. Kind of, I'm six. I'll be 61 soon. February 18th was a very good day. Whoever's birthday that is, mine too. Uh, 
I'll be 61 and I don't recognize this country from the one I grew up in. Uh, I don't know about you all. Uh, my second cousin who's Church of Christ, been a fill-in preacher a lot, told me he felt, he's in Tennessee, feels very strongly that when America legalized uh, homosexual unions that that was the tip of the mountain and we're really going downhill. He saw that as a really big sign. Uh, I work with a lot of Catholics. I was kind of made to go there early in life, so I kind of have a heart for them, and I speak with them quite openly at work a lot. And they, they have, a lot of them question their faith. And so like right now with, I guess our president supposedly is a Catholic and we have other Catholic leaders that Nancy Pelosi and John Kerry and others who embraced uh, uh, abortion. And so the Pope, I guess, told, if I can believe the newspaper, told our president that it was okay if he kept taking communion even though he endorses same-sex marriage and abortion. So I talked to Catholics about that and get a pretty good response, really. And uh, I think we need to be ready as a church that if the Catholics want to start coming here, we're ready to take them in. Uh, one thing I like to throw, I've thrown at the big boss before, a couple of them. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. The second miracle that, that Jesus performed was... Uh, I can only got a minute. Uh, Mark chapter 1, 29 and 30. And immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, they came to the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to him about her. And, and Jesus took her by the hand and healed her, and she started waiting on them. So I was telling him, well, if, if Peter was supposedly the first pope and he was married because we have record of his mother-in-law, then the pope should be married. And uh, at least they shake their heads. So our faith basics, chapter 29, that I like to tell people is we must, number one, have biblical authority. I believe the Bible's true and it's the word of God and it's the only thing out there that I can read every word and believe it. And the second one is, you know, in the beginning God created, one, one. I'm firm in my belief in creation and, and John 3.16 and five seconds. So uh, we, we just, I think we just take the words of Jesus and stand by them. When Jesus, I said it up when my daughter got married, my California in-laws have gone the way of California too much and I asked them about marriage. My father-in-law teaches Bible class to come right out and say, you know, I finally got kind of angry and I said, well, have you not read, quoting Jesus, in the beginning, male and female, he created them, and then the rest. I said, if Jesus mentioned creation and only two genders, and if Jesus also mentioned Jonah and the great fish, Noah, Sodom, and Gomorrah, I'm not going to call Jesus a liar. And so if we're and quote, judging, the word judges them. And if we just quote scriptures, they say, your argument's not with me. God said it. I believe it. I didn't make it up. Your problem's not with me. Thank you. All right, Gilbert wouldn't take my money, so. Um, I've often been impressed when, when uh, Brant and other speakers will, will base a whole sermon on a, one singular verse of the Bible. And um, 
usually when I get up here, it's, I mean, we're all over the place. Um, but I opened my Bible the other day and I, and I stumbled upon this card that had a verse written on it. And that verse is Hebrews 11.6. So that's where we're going to be today. Uh, The book of Hebrews, the first several verses there are talking about faith and what faith means and sort of how, you know, an explanation of how we should understand and take faith. But verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So the question is, is is it possible to take all of this and all of this and our whole relationship with God, can we take all that and squeeze it all into one verse? And I got 342 to, to figure it out. So that word believe, um, I believe it, we have to break that down into in this verse into three separate um, areas. Um, first, we must believe. We must believe that God exists. But it's more than that. Beyond believing, the second part of that belief is that we must believe that he exists, but also that it's worthwhile to seek him and believe in uh, the, some result. And that, and that third part of believing is believing that, that we can be forgiven for our sins. Um, we must also trust. Trust is more than just awareness. Um, it's a trust in God's promises. Uh, we must trust in God's capacity uh, to forgive our sins. And then finally, we believe, we trust. The third part of that is that we have to enter into the benefits. We have to respond. Um, we have to actually uh, take a step forward and repent and ask for that forgiveness. And uh, I got to thinking about this, and I, and I thought, you know, what if we compare this to, uh, you know, to the world of health care? Uh, if we have a, a terrible disease or uh, just the sniffles or me, like I have allergies real bad, uh, you know, they came out with a, these medicines that will help with our allergies. And, and I believe that those medicines will help with my allergies. But if I don't take them, what have I really accomplished? It doesn't matter if I believe that they're there. It doesn't matter that I trust that they would help me. If I don't take the medicine, then I've gained no benefit. So why are we here today? Um, And there's no wrong answer here. Really, there's no wrong answer to that question, why you're here today. Uh, Maybe you... Maybe you saw Brent or somebody else from church in Walmart yesterday and you thought, well, I've been spotted. Now i got to show up or they're going to know that, that I'm not here, you know. Um, maybe you're here because of guilt. Um, guilt of missing or maybe there's some guilt of uh, something that you've done that you've, that's bringing you here. Um, maybe you're truly seeking and that's a great thing. Maybe you're just curious, and that's, that's a great thing, too. Um, but our Christianity, we, we have to know that it's true. We have to believe it will save us, and we have to actually jump in and participate. 
um, we have this offer from God that, that really this verse summarizes, and that is a belief in Jesus, and that's based on historical, a historical foundation evidence. We have to trust that we can be saved by Jesus, and then we have to accept, and we have to give our life to Christ. Now back to my, my medicine analogy, there's places in the world that have no access to medicine. There's people in Africa probably that have al allergies and have no access to Singulair. We can go five minutes from now and buy it at five stores. There's people that in this world that don't have access to the word. We do. And so uh, how much bigger a loss is it if we don't take that than those that don't have access to it? Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, I'm going to get my point out quick. That way I make sure I get it in there. But it's about appreciation uh, for the most part and uh, thinking about being saved. You know, do we truly appreciate that? You know, if... If I was to tell Gilbert that I was going to give him $100, would he be appreciative of it? Or if I actually walked over there and gave him $100, would he be that much more appreciative? You know, so actually thinking about what we're actually being saved from might give us a little more appreciation. <clears throat> so it's a one-worded question, saved. Every Sunday we thank the living God for sending his son to save us. And truly, I say to you, I'm thankful beyond my ability to even show it. Thanksgiving is one of the foundations of our worship and is required per the word in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. But I would like to spend these few minutes to focus on what we are exactly being saved from. I often find myself comparing childhoods with my kids. What, what was life in general like when I was 14 or 15 compared to their current lives? The biggest difference I see is technology. For the most part, my childhood, which was just the 80s, seems almost primitive compared to now. We had to put forth much more effort to see people, places, or things. Now everything is just a click away. In the old days, the effort brought out and produced appreciation. However, now... Uh, now effort has been traded for convenience. We often fail to recognize that this convenience does in turn cost us the appreciation. Think about holidays or birthdays, for example. Receiving a gift card versus receiving a physical present that somebody worked for, sought after, and personally delivered. Which one do you appreciate more? True, some things are given to us without cost and are appreciated. But if we no longer possess it, how upset are we honestly? It did not require any personal resources of time, energy, or finances, so we really didn't lose anything except the joy of having it. <clears throat> as hard as that may be sometimes. But what if we work for days, months, or even years while sacrificing other ple pleasures and saving every spare, sp spare cent for that same thing? Would it hurt that much more? And if so, why? I believe it's because the second way contained price and sacrifice. 
The cost of appreciation in general in the world we live now is evidence that appreciation has significantly disappeared. Mass shootings and daily murders prove little appreciation for life itself. Robberies are now without penalty unless they reach a certain amount, leaving little appreciation for the property of others. Significant historical relics and locations are being removed and demolished without any appreciation for other sacrifices. And how many times a day do you hear OMG or Jesus used without thought or consideration for what they're actually saying? Is it out of appreciation, respect, and honor that they say the name of the Father or a Son or Savior? Daily experiences, daily we experience disregard of appreciation. There's a close relationship between appreciation, another word that has fallen by the wayside, respect. It is actually a synonym of appreciation. Is it possible to have one without the other? If the world has forgotten appreciation for the good things, it is not hard to recognize the lack of respect for the bad things. Hell seems to be just another common expression these days, these words which are not respected and used in divine context. Instead, have been become reduced to common vocabulary fillers in everyday conversations. <clears throat> Imagine this, you're simply driving along when you feel a sneeze coming on. The moment you open your eyes after sneezing, you find yourself a defendant in a courtroom. Extremely confused and disoriented, you lock eyes with the judge, still trying to grasp what is going on. Someone beside you finally stands up to address the court. A life or death sentence has begun. Life or death trial has begun. Looks like I'm going to have to skip down here. But um, basically, I just thought about hell and uh, the the terrible place that it actually is that um, most of the things in the Bible that say send us there are just basically common everyday jokes or or uh, they're not respected is what it what it actually costs. And when you think about um, somebody living in hell forever and all the torment and torture and everything that, uh, that somebody go, is going to go through, because it's not if we die, it's when we die. So if we sit back and truly appreciate what we've been saved from, then that might drive us to actually want to go out and save others from, from uh, partaking in that future experience. So... Looks like I should have practiced a little more. All right. Thank you.